If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI, brought to you by GigaHome. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Rudy Rucker. He is a mathematician, a computer scientist, and a science fiction author. He has written books, both fiction and nonfiction, and he's probably best known for his novels in the Where Tetralogy, which uh, consists of software, wetware, freeware, and realware. And the first two of, all right, the first two of those uh, won uh, Philip K. Dick Awards. That's Welcome right. to the show, Rudy. It's nice to be here, Byron. This is a, seems like a very interesting series you have, and I'm glad to hold forth on my thoughts about AI. Well, wonderful. I always like to start with my Rorschach question, which is, what is artificial intelligence? And why is it artificial? Well, the, a good working definition has always been the Turing test. If, if you have a, a device or program that can convince you that it's a person, then that's pretty close to being intelligent. So it has to master conversation. It can do everything else. It could paint the Mona Lisa. It could do a million other things. But if it can't converse, it's not AI? No, those other things are also a big part of it. You'd want it to be able to write a novel, uh, you know, ideally, you know, or to develop scientific theories, to, to do the kinds of things that we do in, a, in an interesting way. Well, let me try a different attack. What do you think intelligence is? Uh, I think intelligence is to have a a sort of complex interplay with what's happening around you. It's you don't want the old cliche, the the robotic voice or the the screen with capital letters on it. You know, just not even able to use contractions. <laughs> Do not help me. You know, and. Uh, you want, you want something that's flexible and playful in intelligence. Uh, I mean, even in movies, when you look at the actors, you often will get a sense that this person is deeply unintelligent or this person has a, an, an interesting mind. It's a, a richness of behavior, a sort of a complexity that uh, engages your imagination. And do you think it's artificial... Is artificial intelligence actually intelligence, or is it something that can mimic intelligence and look like intelligence, but it doesn't actually have any, you know, there's no one actually. Right. Well, I I think, yeah, the word artificial is misleading. I think, uh, as you asked me before the interview, if I, about my being friends with Stephen Wolfram, and uh, one of Wolfram's points has been that any natural process can embody universal computation. And once you have universal computation, it seems like in principle, you might be able to get intelligent behavior emerging, even if it's not programmed. So then uh, it's, it's not clear that there's some, some bright line that separates human intelligence from the rest of the intelligence. I think when we say artificial intelligence, what we're getting at is the idea that it would be something that we could bring into being, either by designing it or probably more likely by evolving it in a laboratory setting. 
So on, on the Stephen Wolfram thread, his view is everything's computation and that you can't really say there's much difference between a human brain and uh, a hurricane uh, because yes, uh, yeah. what's going on in there is, is, is essentially, you know, a, a giant clockwork running its, its program. Uh, and it's all really his, you know, it's computational equivalence that it's, that it's all kind of the same in the end. Do you subscribe to that? Yeah, I, I'm a convert. Uh, I wouldn't use the word clockwork that you use because that already slips in an assumption that a computation is in some way clunky and, you know, with gears and teeth uh, because we can have. But it's deterministic, isn't it? uh, It's deterministic. Yes. So I guess in that sense, it's like clockwork. So Stephen, Stephen believes, uh, and you know, I hate to paraphrase something as big as like his new kind of science, but he believes that everything is kind of clock, not a clockwork. I, I won't use that word. Everything is deterministic, but right. even the most simple deterministic things, when you iterate them, become unpredictable. And they're exactly. not unpredictable inherently, like from a universal standpoint, but they're unpredictable mm-hmm. from from how in, finite our minds are. We are not. Right. They're in practice unpredictable. Correct. Because so a lot of natural processes. Well, there's like when you take physics one, you say, oh, I can predict where uh, if I fire an artillery shell where it's going to land because it's going to travel along a perfect parabola. And then, you know, I can just work it out, you know, on the back of an envelope in a few seconds. And then when you get into reality, well, they don't actually travel on perfect parabolas. They you know, they have this kind of odd-shaped curve due to air friction that's nonlinear. It depends how fast they're going. And then you get down to saying, well, I, I really would have to simulate this click by click. And then when you get into saying you have to predict something by simulating the process, then the, the event itself is simulating itself already. And in practice, the simulation is not going to run appreciably faster than than just waiting for the event to unfold. And that's that's the catch. We can take a natural process and it's computational in the sense that's deterministic. So you think, well, cool, I'll just find out the rule it's using and then I'll, I'll use some, some math tricks and I'll predict what it's gonna do. And for, for most processes, it turns out there aren't any quick shortcuts. That's, that's actually all, it was worked out by Alan Turing you know, way back when he proved that you can't effectively get extreme speed ups of, of universal processes. And, uh, so then we're stuck with saying, uh, it maybe it's deterministic, but we can't predict it. And going slightly off on a, a side thread here, this is a question of free will always comes up because we say, well, we're not like, deterministic processes because nobody can predict what we do. And the thing is, if you get a really good AI program that's running, you know, at its top level, then you're not going to be able to predict that either. So it's, uh, we kind of confuse free will with unpredictability, but uh, actually unpredictability is enough. Right. But presumably free will is something different, right? I mean, people don't say I'm unpredictable, therefore I have free will. They, they believe they, that they're, 
in some way or another an agent of choice that they that they have a self which is in some sense acting on acting independently i mean frankly of the laws of physics um, well they they like to think that correct but. correct i mean no, they <laughs> I, think they're mis- think. I think they're mistaken they yeah. so you do yeah. not um so free will is largely or is entirely an illusion in in that kind of computational and all we can hope for is unpredictability because you can't mm-hmm. you can't there there's no free lunch here the only way to know uh how the pie is going to splatter in the clown's face is to splatter the pie in the clown's face well there's a lot of metaphors kicking around there uh yeah i think i think free unpredictability is good enough well, let me then throw consciousness at you. So consciousness, people say we, we don't know what it is, but of course we, we know what it is. It's mm-hmm. that you have a that you have a an experience of something, a first person experience. You feel warmth, whereas a computer measures temperature. And that no amount of theory about computation um, allows for the uh, perhaps allows for the concept of how does matter experience the world? Yeah, that's a, a classic question. Philosophers use the word qualia, where you say you can have a system that has can discern what the difference between red and blue, but they say your experience of sensing red is a qualia, and that's this sort of ethereal uh, thing that you would say, well, I'm going to deny that to the the lowly machine, uh, they can't have a qualia. But again, it's an invented concept, and it's not clear why it wouldn't be in the machine. Uh, the the one way there's a sort of Zen, a little Zen story that I like that to me expresses something about how everything could have consciousness. And uh, the uh, the student asked the teacher, "Does a does a rock have Buddha nature?" And the teacher says, "The universal rain moistens all creatures." And what he means by that is consciousness is a sort of universal quantity that pervades the universe, like the rain, and it moistens all creatures. Everything has an element of consciousness in it, and an intelligent system is able to express the consciousness in a complex way that we find interesting and more like us. But I'm perfectly comfortable with saying a rock is conscious. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. I mean, it seems like you said two very different things. One, you said, well, it's just an invented concept. It's just a made up word. Mm-hmm. But the other half of you, or the other other thing you said is, oh no, it's a very real thing. It's just universal. Yeah. Well, that's see, it's a distinction without a difference. If if you're saying qualia in the sense of being something that we have and and objects don't have, then you're asserting something that in fact is not true. And when we say that it's a universal quantity quality that everything in the universe has, then there's a now you're saying there's no difference, so it's uh, we're not really making a distinction. So the, let me say just another thing along this line. That's there's this word. Uh, it's not very well known. It's called hylozoism, 
and it's uh, hilo means matter and uh, zoism is alive and it was a, a philosophy that was really it was kind of a lot of people have held this over the years up until the industrial age when it went out of favor and it's the idea that everything is alive and also everything is conscious slightly different notion which is called panpsychism so pan is everything and psyche is conscious but uh i just use hylozoism i like that it's a cooler word it's weird and it has a z in it and i actually wrote a science fiction novel called hylozoic because i wanted to work it out what it would be like if it became super evident to us that everything in the universe is conscious you know an atom a rock a dog a lamp this guy and uh there's a very interesting book by it that i've read several times uh and uh i'm looking for it on my bookshelf here but uh well i'll find it later and then i'll tell you the, the author's name which i can't remember because i'm 72. Uh, anyway getting back to what i wanted to say hylozoism is is the idea that everything is alive in consciousness and it's it's sort of a simplifying notion uh if you if you're a materialist you, you say that okay nothing is conscious except for us you know us wonderful humans you know the the, the pillar of creation out of all the you know whatever uh, quintillion planets only we have it and then uh if you say that then what we are we're these there's a nice analogy there's a, a guy called gustav fechner that wrote about this in the 1800s and uh he said that's the what he calls the nighttime view of the world where we're like in this giant dark warehouse and it's there's no light and there's just these sort of hostile corners you bump into things and we're these like few little bright fireflies these wonderful fireflies moving around in the ugly dark nighttime universe and that's the view that only humans have consciousness and then the daylight view of the universe says well you turn on the lights or the sun comes in there and the entire warehouse is illuminated and everything in there is lit up and conscious and we're part of it all and we're all it's almost like a hippie vision you know we're in this this cosmic one where we're all together here and we're not alone and it's unlikely that anyone will find a proof that the nighttime view of the universe or the daylight view of the universe is correct although it's conceivable i could you know since i'm a science fiction writer i like to imagine you know thought experiments where this could be become evident but uh it certainly makes you feel better to believe that the daylight view of the universe i hear what you're saying and it's one of those things where people can listen to all of that and say yes but at a deep level People believe if they stub their toe, it hurts. Uh -huh. They accept that as a fact. And if they drop their iPhone, it does not experience pain. But you're saying it does. Well, it doesn't necessarily experience pain because we have a more complicated system running in ourselves. Let's, how is that any different than the people who say we're somehow special? I mean, if the iPhone is a, uh -huh. and the rock isn't experiencing pain and none of it is, then we are something different. Okay. Of our toe well, you're... You're raising some good points there. So let me switch. There's another line that, that needs to be pursued. It would be how do we get from here to there? Okay, how do we get to the point where the iPhone would experience pain? And uh, 
That's that's the traditional question of AI, because I can make the Hylozoic explanation and say, you know, like you, people say, well, that's cool, but come on, you can't talk to a rock, you know. And uh, <laughs> in my novel Hylozoic, I work out you have tele quantum telepathy, so you actually can talk to it, but we don't want to go there. Let's just back up. Let's get back to the traditional question of AI. How are we going to get, uh, you know, some really intelligent robots that we can hang out with? And the uh, there used to be, I guess, there's been various theories about how we would do it. And uh, one was, I guess, in the oh, in the 50s and 60s, there was this kind of dream that we could get some really big woolly logic system that would kind of deduce everything. And every, every utterance you made would be sort of like proving a theorem based on the axioms of what you'd already heard. And uh, this turned out, it was one of those things, it just turned out to be too kludgy, too unwieldy. It never really worked very well. And then what things have kind of switched to in modern times is the notion of the neural net. And this is where you sort of, you nibble, it's like being nibbled to death by ducks. You just say, I'm just going to peck away at this problem. It's what the post office uses for reading handwritten addresses on envelopes. So we know that neural nets work, and they're increasingly, there's this you know deep learning thing. They're getting more complicated structures of neural nets. They're getting better and better at doing stuff. So that's probably where we're going to get our AI from. And after all, that's Roughly speaking, neural nets are something like what we have in our heads. There's a, we have a bunch of neurons and they're connected and they have, they send signals to each other and there's certain weights on the signals and, uh, but it's all, you know, a tangle and we have no idea, you know, what the weights are or even how to design them. And I used to teach AI at San Jose State when uh, I was a computer science professor there for 20 years. And, uh, we we did one project we did was face recognition and it was it was surprising how well it worked it, it surprised me but the interesting thing that i found especially interesting was that when you get the the so-called algorithm that works it's it's not like some big aha it's not like some magic thing you measure the the angle of the nose and the darkness of the eye it's it's not you can't put it into rules of thumb it turns out just to be this god-awful heap of, you know, about 10,000 or 100,000 real numbers between zero and one. So, and the way it works is, as I'm, I'm, I know you know all this, but just for our listeners who aren't familiar, I'll just summarize this a little bit. The way the neural net works is by a process called training, and you, you start up with the neural net, and really without any particular knowledge about how it should be and depending how sophisticated uh you're going to make it you might have one layer of neurons or two layers or three layers and the thing that's been happening recently is they're having more and more layers then each layer there might be maybe a hundred or ten thousand points that are called neurons and then they're it's like a graph they're connected to some of the other neurons around them and uh they either you know stand out a one or they send out a zero or maybe they send out a real number. And then they base their output on the inputs that they're getting that are coming in. And at the input layer, the, the, the top layer of the neural nets, that's the one that sort of looks at the scene around. So maybe you'd have a, a photograph and each pixel would be wired to one of the neurons and it would be sending in a, 
a color value or a grayscale value. And then that would go and be connected to the hidden layers. And then you'll get to the the output layer. And then that would be outputting, you know, that's Joe Schmo or that's Dick Clark, whatever. And the way you train it is you give it, you have a stack of about, you know, again, a thousand maybe or 10,000 faces. And you, each time you give it a face and you say, okay, who do you think that is? And then if it's right, you, you kind of reinforce the weights that it has. And then if it's wrong, you, you, you change the weights that it has. And you don't do that randomly. You, you do something called back propagation that sends it back to the web of nets between the neurons. And, uh, after enough training, then it works. And one of the new wrinkles now is to have, uh, this is what Google's been using, is you have, you co-evolve something that tries to break or trick the neural net that you're teaching. Something that keeps finding the examples that make it screw up. And so you're kind of co-evolving the, uh, <laughs> the, the thing that, that recognizes the faces and the thing that makes faces that it can't recognize. And these things are called GANs now, G-A-N-S. And uh, if you look online, you can find some, this whole space of Gantz faces. It generates faces that look like famous people. And then there's this incredibly gnarly borderline faces where it's sort of between two faces and it didn't settle down well. And it just looks like this really wonderfully hideous alien. And, and that's probably where our AI is going to come from, that kind of system. So I'll, I'll wrap up the consciousness stuff and I, my mind's reeling with like a hundred more questions to ask you. Like once I die, according to that view, I'm still conscious. So you probably shouldn't bury me. And in the case of your rock, yeah, but if you cut it in half, all of a sudden you have two rocks. But if you cut a person in half, you don't have two conscious entities. And I think all of that just breaks down. Uh, I, I mean, IIT is the latest incarnation of panpsychism and I, I think it's all kind of, Anyway, I, I would love to spend an hour talking about all of that, but I would just ask you one final question about consciousness, which is our entire basis of human rights, the reason that we don't torture people, uh, uh -huh. to, everything comes from the idea that human beings feel pain. We have a self uh -huh. that experiences the world, and therefore uh -huh. we, don't, we don't abuse animals, presumably, that feel pain. We're very interested in the question of can a whatever feel and uh -huh, uh -huh. bacteria doesn't feel pain. You can annihilate them with, but a dog does, and you shouldn't. And and that entire basis of of civilization and human rights and the whole reason we have habeas corpus and the whole reason we have the whole shebang is because we experience the world. And when you say rocks do as well, then at some level, aren't you just undermining that entire edifice that we've built and you're saying well now there's nothing about us any different than a rock so if you're willing to put a jackhammer on a rock you can put a jackhammer on a human uh well no obviously i wouldn't say that uh the thing is we're not saying that we're no better than rocks we're saying that rocks are as good as us but then you're saying well why can we jackhammer a rock well the rock doesn't care it's one thing Another thing is that because uh, we, it's important to us to maintain our bodily integrity because we need to be able to reproduce and uh, carry on. And to a rock, it doesn't matter. It'll be two rocks. There's no problem. Um, but also, the thing is, we're 
even if everything's conscious, we're in the same family. You know, we're uh, we humans. We're you know we're these meat people. You know, in the same way that you treat your relatives, generally speaking, better than the people that you aren't related to, or you care more about your friends than people who aren't your friends, or you care more about your countrymen. So we're this big family, the family of humanity. And of course, uh, we would want to take care of each other and do what we can. Whether or not consciousness doesn't really come into that, it's not really the issue. We're not taking care of each other because we're conscious. We're doing it because we love each other and we're fellow humans. Uh, One thing I just want to throw in here about the rock. People say, well, a rock doesn't know anything. Because I've told this to my classes and then I say, well, look, though, if you let go of it, it knows to fall to the ground. <laughs> so it does know something. All right. <laughs> and whether, you know, when you die, what happens to your consciousness? That's another whole thread. Uh, there's this, that was my, one of my very first novels, Software, was about this question of what people sometimes now call uploading. The idea that you could extract, if your personality is in some sense like, a program that's stored in the wetware of your body, then it it might be possible to extract your personality and put it into a, a machine. And that's that's become a very popular idea. There's been a zillion movies about it, and the extropians talk about it. And uh, I don't like to brag, but actually my novel software was the very first place that, that ever appeared as a plot point. And it it wasn't, I wrote this in 1979, and it was not at all an easy idea to come up with. Uh, Something about it sort of didn't come easily. And at that point I was studying, there's a philosopher called J.R. Lucas, and he used to say that machines can't be intelligent because of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Because Gödel's theorem says there's always something that a system can't prove, and then he, he would say, well, but we humans, you, you show us the sentence that we can't prove, and we'll say, oh, sure, we can prove that. But his, his whole argument doesn't really work. But just delving into that deeper and deeper, then I got into the idea that actually, you know, a person is, we're like hardware, you know, the body with software on it, the, the, the program that's running on it, which, uh, and then I had the idea, why not extract the program and put it on a machine? And then... That, that's been used a million times since then. So you moving on off, off my, my favorite topic um, to AI, uh, mm-hmm. you made some statements a minute ago that I kind of want to go and explore a little deeper. You said neural nets um, are loosely or roughly modeled after how the brain works. And I've always yes. found neural net the phrase just to be marketing copy i mean the the fact of the matter is we don't really know how a memory is stored in the brain uh there's this worm called the nematode worm which we've been trying to figure out how it's 302 neurons make it make it a thing we can't we don't really know how a neuron works it could be complicated as a supercomputer it could be Uh doing stuff at the plank level and, yeah. and to somehow to say, um, and now we make this really simple software that, that weights yeah. differently. And, oh, that's, yeah. by the way, how the brain works. Uh, yeah. I want to give you either a chance to, re- to, to kind of expand on that or clarify it or double down on it. Do you really think neural nets 
that bio, that they really are modeled after biology and they fundamentally act the way the brain acts? Well, that's a very good point, Byron. Uh, and I'm glad you raised that because we do, you know, mathematicians and computer science get always get carried away <laughs> with whatever they're doing. And I, I, you, you're making the point that a physical neuron is really, it's nothing, nothing like some little, a dot, you know, on a piece of graph paper that says zero or one. It's, Anything in biology is always just so unbelievably complicated compared to what you thought. And there's, you know, there's not like one transmitter chemical. There might be four of them or, or 30 of them, you know, and the connections are, you know, it's just super gnarly. And so it would be, I, w I think we could say that the so-called neural net of today's computer science, it's a, it's a first attempt. And to get something that really works, it's going to have to get a lot more complicated those those things that we're calling the neurons and approaching you know getting closer to a model of an actual neuron though again there's no reason why an artificial brain would have to be modeled on the brain that we have you know there might be some completely different approach and there's always been this sort of dream of ai people it's less of a popular dream now that there might be some magic key if we could just find the right thing to use, you know, the right stuff to make it out of. But nothing else has, has worked at all. So the closest we can come now is these, these tinker toy neural nets that are not really modeled on the brain, but I think it's fair to say that they're inspired by the brain. And uh, but what's going to happen, I think, is well, two two things are going to happen. One is as the, the crunch of our computing ability increases, we'll be able to, and this is the thing I mentioned that's been happening in recent years with what they call uh, you know, deep learning. It, just training a neural net used to be, you know, we, we had our dinky older computers, and it was really beyond their abilities to train a complicated neural net. And the, the hope is that by adding, you know, more complexity, the actual model of the net that we're using, it might get closer to us. Another thing that's really just coming into play is the idea of casting aside the uh, using the, the silicon chips as our computational devices. And this sort of connects with some of the things Wolfram says. Uh, it would be, what if we could use biocomputation? And then uh, we'll be more like closer to Dr. Frankenstein here, getting, you know, animal tissues or human tissues and working with these things to train them and uh i think that's going to be very much an option because if you look back i mean a lot of the things we used to use i mean like we really hardly use watches with gears in them anymore you know we, we have chips in them and it's uh technology changes and people there's there's solutions they used to use that they don't use anymore you know we don't use horses pulling carts we we have you know internal combustion engines and then the next thing you know it's electric you know and uh i, I think a hundred years from now it, it's quite likely the things we call computers might very well be biological entities and uh not these silicon chip things that we've been using because it's as a science fiction writer, you, you think about these things. I mean, the timeline of, of us using the, the chips, it's only, what is it, 50 years since we started doing it? It's not, 
it's not a huge amount of time, and history is very long. So I think the, the final solution to getting uh, intelligent beings might very well be to be taking the biocomputational route. And then it gets into that issue you talked about, what about the rights of these things? And if they're biological, then it's you know almost like you're having slaves, and that's not a good thing. What do you think in terms of time horizon that we might see a general intelligence? Well, you know, it's they always, for a long time now, they've been saying within 10 or 20 years, and then it's always longer than they thought. It just seems to be a, a much harder problem than people expected. Uh, there's the old joke that teaching the computer to play chess is easy, but teaching it to recognize the chessboard is hard, you know, to see to see the pieces, that's, that's hard. And it's the things that we take for granted that are the hard things. So, I mean, and what if these, the sort of bot type intelligence are mo mostly being used just for really annoying purposes, you know, like for making spam calls and, and enforcing ill understood regulations upon the people and uh, making inaccurate predictions to, back up harmful policy decisions so whether we can get to this these nice really pleasantly intelligent kinds of bots or robots it's uh i i, I would be inclined to say it'll be a hundred years I, I don't think it's going to be it, rome wasn't burnt in a day so when you put on your prognosticator hat though and you see that we increasingly computerized things we and, and that and we increasingly develop technology which multiplies human ability for good or ill mm -hmm. when you net everything out are you um are you optimistic about the future or not um i think i'm optimistic sure it's uh right now you know as many of us probably feel the country is not moving in a very good direction but uh President Obama once made a point that if you're trying to steer a like a super tanker or a luxury liner, it's it takes a long time to make a turn, and it's we get worked up about the daily newspaper, but it, like I said, history is long, and there's a lot of things still to come. There's new generations, so you know the. There was always the fear that we would completely blow it and destroy civilization with a nuclear war or with some killer virus. And uh, that's, you know, still a possibility, but. Right, right. I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist as well, anybody who reads my writings. But, but let's be candid. We almost did. Any I mean, you can count the number of times we almost had nuclear annihilation. You had the, the incident. Um, where you had two to one, the Soviets voting to launch uh, in Cuba. Um, mm -hmm. And only yeah. because you had one, one person there who could override it was that. You had, um, you had a Russian system that detected an incoming uh, U.S. invasion, and the person in charge broke protocol and didn't fire the counteroffensive, and then it turned out, you know, just on instinct or something. So you could say we got through that one by the skin of our teeth. And, and what I'm, I'm really interested in, though, is if you just simply add up all the things technology can do for good or evil, 
you say, well, what's in the good column? Oh, well, it can feed more people. It can help us solve a lot of problems. It can help us probably generate energy quicker. It can probably end disease. Uh, mm-hmm. It can allocate resources better. It can, you know, it can do a thousand things really well. Um, it allows people to communicate better. Uh, all of those things, you know, diagnose illness and a million other things. And then you say, well, what's on the, on the negative side? Well, it can be used to engineer uh, viruses. Uh, nations can use it as, to, to further a totalitarian regime. They can spy on their citizens in toto because they can recognize all the words that are being said and all the different things. And so at some level, you kind of do that calculus on both sides of that equation. And mm-hmm. you have to ask the question, is the world becoming more brittle and is asymmetry increasing? Is the ability for a small number? We've, we've always been in a world where there are more people who want to do good than evil. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of the mm-hmm. But if, if asymmetry means that a small number of people who are bent to do evil can do a whole lot more, like how does mm-hmm. that net out? So make me the, make me the optimistic case that, uh, well, you know, we're always going to have problems, but we're going to muddle. Well, yeah. Well, I'm, there's several things I, I tell myself to be optimistic. I mean, I have grandchildren. I don't want the world to go down a toilet. Uh, one thing, like there's sometimes people talk about the plague that kills everything. Well, <laughs> when I was growing up, I I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I we knew this gentleman farmer, and he had a herd of, you know, a hundred cows, and he was talking about the diseases they would get or the things that would happen, and he said, but nothing ever kills all of them. Nothing ever kills all of them, and uh, that's kind of a ray of hope there. Another thing about, again, still on the biological front, we worry about people being able to make some virus that there was no no counter, no no antidote to it. And here again, I think we need to keep in mind that nature, every single organism has been trying to take over the world for whatever, hundreds of thousands of years. It's not like the... the the organisms in nature are these like sitting ducks. They're not like these naive things. They're these these tough rats in an alley. So I think if just because we make up some dippy little little toy pr- organism that we think is going to kill the world, it's I mean it's like this wind up duck and you put it in an alley and it it, it probably won't make much impact there. Another thing uh, regarding the government. Um, the thing is, people are very contrary. They're sly. There's a lot of us. There's a lot of anti-establishment people. A lot of them are actually computer people, you know, hackers or hackers in the kind of older sense of the kind of good, more noble person, not just in the stealing money kind of person. So I think there's a safe bet that anything that big government wants to do uh the actual the resistance the sort of innate resistance in humanity will find a way to to counteract them so uh those are things i'm optimistic about and the the natural world i think there really are a lot of people that appreciate the natural world and don't want to trash it it's uh if you look at the 50s they sort of that wasn't even a factor that they thought about they were just you know Let's let's pave things over. Let's saw things down. And now there's arguments about it, and it goes back and forth. But it's not, you know, like it's not like it's 
it's ruined and, and nobody's going to save it. Uh, I found great solace when I go out in the woods. Even I live in Silicon Valley, but it's surprisingly easy just to, you know, I can walk 15 minutes and I can be in some hills that there's nobody there. And nature just keeps doing her thing. She doesn't stop. And uh, you've got the water and the clouds and the plants, the bugs. And those those things aren't going away. They're doing fine. And they'll survive us. You know, maybe we're to some extent like a, a disease that the planet has. And <laughs> the planet can take care of itself. And uh, hopefully it won't have to be by eradicating us. So 10 years and nine days ago, you had a brain hemorrhage. Yeah. You wrote a book called The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. What gnarly computation taught me about ultimate reality, the meaning of life, and how to be happy. I don't think we can cover all of that in our closing time, but how? what did it teach you about how to be happy? Uh, let's see. Uh, um, let me find the book here. And, uh, I, you know, it's hard to remember what I said a long time ago. But uh, so there's a number of points I came up with. And this was a book that The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. And that title, it's a what I would call a dialectic triad. So the, the Life Box is the idea of a, a neural net style computer program that imitates a person. And then the soul is the uh, the thing that you've been talking about as consciousness, that we think of that as the sort of antithesis. So you get the thesis of, can the life box imitate a person? The antithesis, there's the soul that we can't, can't find a way to emulate and catch in the nets of our technology. And the seashell is the synthesis, and this is sort of a, a coded reference to Wolfram, because he went on this kick of looking at this kind of shell called a cone shell that's found in the Pacific. And uh, it has this little pattern of triangles on it. And it's a somewhat random looking pattern, but it's actually not random. It's performed by a biocomputation that creates this, you know, beautiful kind of network of little white and, and black triangles. And so the, uh, the point that, that I'm making there is that we can have a computation that generates something as rich and gnarly as the natural world, but it's uh, it's still like a computation. So anyway, how to be happy. Uh, the meaning of life is beauty and love. Okay. And how can I be happy? First of all, turn off the machine. The idea is uh, you really can't look at your smartphone and your computer all day long the the rich stuff around you is is the natural world and it's the, the humans you live with. Uh, secondly, see the gnarl. And when you look at the natural world, gnarly is a word I, I used to mean something that lies on the border between order and disorder. It's what's also called chaos in physics. And chaos is health. Chaos is not a bad thing. If you look at the, the shaking of a leaf in the air, that's a beautiful chaotic system, and it's gnarly, and it's wonderful. Um, feel your body. 
something, a point we didn't really make earlier is there's this tendency to focus on your brain and think that's the seat of consciousness. But it's really your entire body that you live in. And uh, being aware of my muscles and like if you're a computer person, you have to remind yourself to get out of your chair and walk around. But it's taking pleasure in your body is important. Uh, and releasing your thoughts. That's another one. And the idea is to not get hung up on worrying about the sort of obvious things. It's in some ways that the news is sort of very bad for you because it's a certain range of questions and topics that are being chosen by the people who run society and they're forcing you to think about them. And there's so many other things you can think about. And let's see, two more. Open your heart. And that's, uh, people are the most interesting entities that you're going to relate to. And uh, there's a tendency to view them as other and not as uh, not as worthy of your attention or love if there's something about them that's different from you. But open your heart. Uh, I sometimes think of the analogy of there being barbed wire wrapped around, around my heart. And uh, I always need to remember to just cut that loose, get rid of that. And just relax. Not everybody's my enemy. And finally, be amazed. That's the, the basic question, and we'll never know the answer to it. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why does the universe even exist? How can I be conscious? How can I have a family? How can I talk? How can I see? It's just a miracle. And be grateful for the miracle. All right. What a wonderful place to leave it. Tell us, you're a fascinating guy with a million fascinating thoughts. If people want to kind of read your latest thinking or how that has manifested itself in fiction, like where should they start? What should they search for on, uh, on the, at their favorite bookstore and so forth? Well, uh, in 2019, Nightshade Books is going to put out 10 of my books. They're going to reissue nine of my older ones and put out a new one. Um, Coming out this month, you'll see it on Amazon it, by August, there's a novel called Return to the Hollow Earth, and it's published together with another called The Hollow Earth. And those are, you might call them steampunk, they're said in the 1850s. And it's about this screwball idea I've always loved, that the planet Earth is hollow, like a tennis ball. <laughs> These guys, they go to Antarctica, <clears throat> This it's this farm boy makes friend with Edgar Allan Poe, and they ride a balloon to the middle of Antarctica, and they jump up and down on the ice, and it breaks, and then they fall through this thousand mile hole into the inside of the Earth, which is uh, full of light. There's uh, there's some beings at the center that are sending up this sort of neon glow, and it's uh, a great adventure. It's like Wonderland. They fall into a hole, and uh... yeah, it is. Yeah, that's well. Lewis Carroll. He's certainly one of my forefathers. He was a mathematician who wrote crazy stories. <laughs> and then again, people can just go to Amazon, type Rudy Rucker, and see. I saw you had a list of everything there. Yeah, I have really a ton of books out. There's, I think, like forty books I've published. So, and uh, yeah, you can see what you can find. If, uh, if you go to rudyrucker.com slash books, you'll find a list of them all. Well, I want to thank you so much for a fascinating hour, near hour. And uh, when you have a, something new you want to talk about, you're more than welcome to come back. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Byron. It was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.